Let's go Mountaineers! Fellow Mountaineers, you made it to the next episode of the Bearded Eared podcast titled Trust the Beard. You know, gathering many statistics and compiling all this data is quite the task. And I'm also a one-man band putting it all together. And I want to present to you, the listeners, with the most accurate information I can find. I believe I owe it to Mountaineer fans everywhere to produce the best quality podcast I can. The following segment is one I will present each week to sort of fact check myself and clarify any mistakes from the previous episode. I encourage you to reach out to me if you find any information that's incorrect and please let me know as these errors are purely inadvertent. Before we get started on the next episode, I want to take care of a few corrections from episode one. Now, I had reported that Neil Brown's 2019 was rated 30th overall and was the most difficult. As I fact-checked myself, I did notice an error in my reporting according to TeamRankings.com, who I use uh, frequently for my offensive and defensive stat rankings. Now, they list 2019 as 53 and not 30. So this certainly was an error on my part. Uh, Maybe it was a typo in my notes or I could have been looking at the wrong season but I decided to research other websites to see where maybe I got that number. Um, I looked through several of them. I came across one that did list Neil Brown as 35 overall, but I did notice that there was a large discrepancy between all these sites. And depending on which one you're looking at, some schedules are weighted different than others. Uh, Some only value the win-loss record, while others put more emphasis on home versus away and who your opponent was and maybe who else your opponent has played. So I thought to be fair, I will compare each of the four coaches' first seasons side by side and look at the opponent win-loss percentage, how many Power 5, G5, and FCS teams they faced, as well as top 25 teams and away games, and we'll let those numbers speak for themselves. But before we get started, uh, I'll let you know I did not include bowl games. This is just the regular season, and I included Big East opponents as Power 5s to be fair to all the coaches. Now, Power 5 wasn't really a term back then, but the Big East was an automatic qualifier uh, for the BCS Bowl, which to me reflects a power conference. So let's dive into the numbers. So in this segment, I'm going to provide a lot of numbers and percentages. I'll try to keep it as simple as possible, but we'll start with Brown in 2019 and compared to the other coaches. So Brown had 12 games in the regular season schedule, as did Stu and Holgerson. Now Rich Rod only had 11, because at the time college football had not adopted a 12 game schedule. And I didn't want to use overall win-loss record. Again, that would not be fair to Rich Rod, as he has one less game than the other coaches. So I used the winning percentage of the opponent. So Brown came in first at 57.6, Rich Rod was second at 57, Stu was third at 55, and Holgerson was last at 54.9. Now we look at Power 5 opponents. Brown faced 11 Power 5s, and Holgerson, Stu, and Rich Rod each faced 9. Now to weight that against how many games they played, since Rich Rod had one less, uh, Brown was first, uh, 91.6% of his schedule was Power 5, Richrod was second, 81.8%. 
uh, let's see, Holgerson and Stu both tied at 75% of their schedule was against Power 5 opponents. Now, Richrod, Stu, and Holgerson each, each faced two group of five opponents, while Brown did not face any. And Brown, Holgerson, and Stu each faced one FCS opponent, while Richrod did not face any. And that can account for having one less game. Now we look at top 25 teams. Brown led the way again with five top 25 opponents. Richrod was second with four, Holgerson in third with two, and Stu, I was surprised, did not face any top 25 opponents in 2008. Now to weight that against the amount of games they faced, Brown led the way with 41.6% of his schedule was top 25 opponents. Richrod was second with 36.35%. Holgerson was third at 16.7%. And again, Stu was last because he did not face any top 25 teams. Now for away games. Brown led the way with six away games, and the other three coaches had five away games. Now for Brown, that extra one comes because he did have an additional Power 5 opponent. Uh, typically in a traditional schedule, when you face a G5 opponent, you're going to get them as a home game. Since he didn't have one and he had a, an extra Power 5, that was on the road at Missouri, so that's where the sixth away game comes in. Now, to compare uh, their away games against top 25 talent, Brown and Richrod both tied at three uh, away games against top 25 teams. Holgerson, out of his five away games, one of them was against a top 25 team. And against Stu, of his five away games, he did not face any top 25 teams. So as you compare these uh, seasons, the, the margins are, are minimal. It may not be the gap of uh, 30th schedule versus 53. But when you look at the stats, Brown had led in all categories and actually tied uh, Rodriguez with three away games against top 25 opponents. So as this assessment closes, uh, you can see that Brown still had the hardest schedule between all four coaches. Now we'll turn to some wide receiver stats that need corrected. For the wide receivers, I've reported that 44 receptions and 545 yards were on the roster combined, but I inadvertently omitted backup tight end Giovanni Haskins, who recorded 16 receptions for 148 yards, and also redshirt freshman Sam James recorded two receptions for two yards. So that brings the 2019 total to 62 receptions for 695 yards. And that actually increases the returning production percentage from 26% of the catches to 37, and 20% of the yards to 26% of the receiving yards. So all in all, uh, the changes are minimal, but I just wanted to clarify that information. Also, on the starting offensive line, um, the five guys I reported on, that was the lineup as of August 26, 2019, as reported by Metro News, which was five days before the season opener against JMU. Now, throughout the season, they would shuffle in different guys and even change positions, but those five guys got the bulk of the snaps for 2019. So that is it for this correction uh, segment of the show. I hope you guys um, understand that I do a lot of research, but I do make mistakes, and this is why I wanted to add this segment to let you guys know that I do fact check, I hold myself accountable, 
and I just want to uh, give you guys all the accurate information I can and, and make this the quality product. So without uh, further ado, let's jump into episode number two of the Trust the Beard podcast. This is the Neil Brown Report Card Year 2020, the COVID year. before we jump into 2020, I want to remind listeners that this season is assessed in a vacuum, so to speak. And each year I'm grading based on what was expected from the fan base and the media for that specific year. And for year two of what would be of a rebuilding program. So for 2020, this was a COVID year. And this grade is a reflection more of the overall uh, weirdness that was to follow. So half is based on the outcome of our record. And the other half is kind of what was left on the table through the pandemic which was completely out of anyone's control. So here we go with year 2020. So in this COVID year, uh, every program is pretty much affected. Uh, You know, recruiting is essentially limited to Zoom calls. Uh, I believe some spring and even summer workouts um, are limited, you know, following certain protocols. And there's even some conferences that just completely shut down football for the year. Um, So this was a very odd season to evaluate. But in the end, uh, WVU ends up playing nine regular season games. We go five and four, uh, six and four overall, uh, because we didn't win our bowl game. But, you know, our season was cut short due to COVID. And I know fans um, who aren't a fan of Neil don't really want to give him credit. Essentially, at least full credit, and I've heard this from you know some media outlets as well, saying that WVU only got to a bowl because the season was shortened and you know all the chaos that ensued. But I kind of disagree um, because I feel like if you're going to use that logic with WVU, uh, then you can say that about every team, right? Because everyone was kind of going through this uh, uh, odd situation. If you look at someone like Ohio State, you know, they only played six regular season games and made it into the college football playoff. You know, the other three, Alabama, Clemson, Notre Dame, they each played 11. So if Ohio State had played a full schedule, would they have made it? Uh, You know, who's to say? Uh, Like I said, there's a lot left on the table. And if you look at the top 25 college football rankings uh, at the end of the season, eight teams were ranked that had played less than 10 games. Um, and just to point out a few, uh, Buffalo was ranked 25 at six and one USC was 21 at five and one Indiana was 12 at six and two Northwestern was ranked 10 at seven and two. Um, you know, what season would that ever happen where a playoff team only played six games, you know, a top 20 team only played six games. Um, and like I said, this is such an odd year to evaluate because not all the schedules were similar. However, the pandemic did affect everyone, uh, you know, about as evenly as it could. So, um, and like I said, everyone kind of dealt with the same situation. So my thing is, you know, if that logic applies to WVU, then again, it has to apply to everybody. You know, everyone had a successful year because they didn't have to play a full schedule, right? But I think you can look at 2020 and see some great positives for our football program. You know, even though we didn't play a full schedule, you can see us trending upwards. 
And so right now we'll jump into a few of those numbers about our returning production, our overall stats compared to 2019 uh, that show, you know, that we're progressing forward. Looking at the 2020 uh, production, you know, this is kind of a uh, 30,000 foot view of it. Um, but our returning production was 64% for 2020 uh, on both sides of the ball. There was 71% on offense and 58% on defense. Now, if you remember in episode one, as I pointed out, there is a bit of a correlation with teams returning a lot of their production. They tend to have a better season. And, you know, the same if you don't return, you know, usually less than 50%, your season is not as successful. Um, so if you look at the stat rankings between the previous two seasons, uh, or at least 2020 and 2019, you'll you'll see a correlation that with that returning production, um, you know, we are progressing in the offense at this point. So in 2019, um, we rank 127 was 77 rushing yards per game. And now in 2020, that bumped up to ranking of 111 with 113 rushing yards per game. For passing, in 2019, we ranked 50 with 247 yards. And in 2020, uh, that was bumped up to uh, 29 overall ranking with 275 passing yards per game. Uh, points per game, we ranked 111 with 20 points per game in 2019. Uh, for 2020, we ranked 100 with 23.2 points per game. Now on the other side of the ball, on defense, 2019, we ranked 73rd with 406 yards given up per game. Uh, in 2020, that jumped all the way to number five. We had a top five in opponent yardage at 300. Now looking at points per game, in 2019 we ranked 76 with 30.3 uh, points per game given up and in 2020 that bumped all the way up to 25, uh, 21.7 uh, opponent points per game. So as you can see, in all those categories we moved up in the ranking, you know, especially on defense with the opponent uh, yardage. You know, we went from 73 to number 5. That's uh, pretty impressive. And as I stated in the last episode, you know, there were seven wide receivers who never caught a collegiate pass starting in 2019. And right, 11 of those guys accounted for 62 receptions for 695 yards. So fast forward to the end of the 2020 season. So we've gone through two full seasons of Neil Brown. That same group of guys now account for 184 receptions and over 2,200 yards. So from the beginning of 2019 to the end of 2020, that same group of guys practically tripled their output for receptions and yards. And I understand, uh, you know, there is the argument of, well, obviously they're on the team, so that's who you're gonna throw to, right? Um, but I guess I'm saying with that little production to start after two seasons, um, to have that much of a jump in production, that's a sign of an offense moving forward. You know, they're, they're still young guys. A lot of these are sophomores. Um, and, and really a bulk of that came from five guys. 
so really the the wealth was being spread around uh, in the wide receiver room. Now we look at running back. You know, Letty Brown uh, rushed for over a thousand yards and nine TDs and had 5.1 yards per carry. Now, if you're into analytics, um, yards per carry uh, and yards per pass are a big thing in yards per play that looked at for success. And usually five is about where you want to get to. Um, that tends to correlate with success. So for Letty to have 5.1 yards per carry is pretty solid. And I think it's important to, to note, and I didn't realize this, this was kind of a surprise to me, that that was our first 1,000-yard rusher in three years. And I thought that couldn't be because, you know, 2018, we had a very prolific offense. Well, the last guy to rush for over 1,000 was Justin Crawford in 2017. Uh, 2018, Kennedy McCoy led with only about 800 yards. I say only, but you know, it's still a good season, but it was less than a thousand. And in 2019, uh, McCoy and Letty each only got about 300 yards, um, you know, plus, but you know, we struggled in the run game that first year. And according to team rankings, and this is where, you know, all these stat rankings come from, you know, our run rate percentage for 2020 was 44.25. So we're still passing for 55.76% of the time. So, you know, we do lean on the pass more than the run and we still got a thousand yard rusher. So to me, that shows that there is growth in your run pass game and especially your road line. And to me, Deggie looked like after 2020, he could take the next step. You know, I, I know he was pulled in the bowl game for Austin Kendall and we did come back and win that. But for the season, uh, Deggie was, uh, you know, the full-time starter. He did beat out Austin Kendall in the spring, in the fall. And he passed for over 2,500 yards with a 64% uh, completion percentage. He had 14 touchdowns and four interceptions. Uh, Now, I believe at this point, I thought his biggest attribute was he didn't turn the ball over. You know, he only had four INTs which may not seem like much, but for a young offense and a rebuilding program, that's huge. You're not giving your opponent uh, opportunities to take away possessions. Um, So, you know, with these numbers, uh, I believe it does tell a tale that in year two, we had made a significant jump forward with our offensive and defensive progression. Now, next segment, we're gonna look at the schedule and we're going to break down some numbers about how we fared against the Big 12. Now in this shortened season, uh, we only played nine games and the regular season went five and four. Um, But if you look at some of the games, you know, we battled number 15 Oklahoma State on the road. Um, You know, they did jump to an early lead 20 to seven Uh, But defensively, we did hold them scoreless for about 99% of the second half. Uh, In that time, we did cut the lead to 20 to 13. Uh, But eventually, Chuba Hubbard, you know, he broke a 27-yard TD run late in the game, about a minute left, and that pretty much sealed the deal. Um, And then we went on to number 22, Texas, and we lost 17 to 13. And, you know, this was a Texas team that had B. John Robinson. He was a freshman. 
and you had Sam Ellinger as your quarterback. And if you look further into that game specifically, you know, the final three possessions, we actually ended in the Texas red zone, the 17, the 16, and the 8. But each time we had to settle for a field goal. Um, now, I know that can always reflect coaching, but in a rebuilding program, and I know Rich Rodriguez and Dana Holgerson have also uh, said this before, that when you're building, you got to start, you know, the first step is, is, is being able to move the ball, you know, between the 20s, which we were able to do. The next step is turning field goals into touchdowns. And so I think that would be the next step for the team at this point. Um, and that's something we did struggle with in 2020. Um, you know, we settled for a lot of field goals. But, you know, late in the third of that game, uh, WVU was trying to tie the game. We were inside the 10. You know, and Daigie had a touchdown pass to Winston Wright in the back of the end zone. Uh, but it bounced, you know, initially it bounced off his hands, Wright's hands. He regained possession as he was going to the ground. And they initially ruled it a touchdown. But after the replay, the refs decided that he didn't have full possession before he stepped out. And, you know, I've looked at that play over and over and over. And it seems like it could really go either way, but it was overturned from the original TD call. And I think the in-booth rules official even said that, you know, he would have called it incomplete. So we settled for a field goal. Um, You know, if you want to see that play, just look up YouTube of the WVU uh, Texas game, the full version from 2020. It's about the one hour, 50 second mark. Um, and that's not to say that that TD would have won the game, but I think it's little things like that, um, like that play that, and, and the other ones I'd mentioned where we're in the red zone, is that's the margin between a win and a loss. And so we hadn't quite made, made that next step in, in punching that ball into the end zone. You know, at this point, both teams were four and two. So after six games, you know, we were looking pretty good, right? You know, four and two is a good feeling to, to be in year two at that point. Um, and we were really moving the ball between the 20s. Uh, Texas, I wouldn't say they didn't have an answer for our offense, but, uh, you know, we were, we had a good balance and we were able to move the ball up and down the field. And defensively, Texas actually finished number five in the country that year, uh, scoring 42.7 points per game. And we held them to 17 in their house. So that that in itself is pretty impressive. And we actually held them to their lowest point total of the year. And I believe of the 10 games they played, they had put up over 40 points like six times. Um, so again, that's it's kind of an encapsulation of the year, just that game, like just being so close in certain ones um, and just not quite being able to finish it. Um, and I'd say that would probably be the one detriment to Neil Brown in this year. Um, like I said, obviously the offense was moving. The defense really held their own, but it's that converting field goals into touchdowns. Um, but, you know, overall we did have a big win again against number 16 K-State. You know, we blew them out 37 to 10. You know, we had a big win over TCU 24 to 6. Um, and we only suffered one blowout loss. Uh, that was at the end at Ohio, or I'm sorry, Iowa State, you know, 42 to 6. But our other three losses, um, you know, they were an only an average of eight points. Um, that That's one possession. Those are essentially one possession games. 
And, uh, you know, with Iowa State, that was certainly their, their glory year under Matt Campbell. Um, you know, they went 8-1 and one in the conference. Their, their only loss was to number six, Oklahoma State, uh, in the regular season. They did lose in the Big 12 title against Oklahoma, who was number 10 at the time. But they went on to beat, you know, a top 25 Oregon team in the Fiesta Bowl. And, you know, they had Brock Purdy. Um, they had Brees Hall. They had Xavier Hutchinson. You know, all those guys are in the NFL now. And and Purdy, you know, he's essentially a starting quarterback for one of the NFL's best teams in the 49ers. So, um, you know, and each of them had a long list of collegiate accolades. So it really wasn't a surprise that they were as good as they were. And... I know fans can argue that, you know, well, why didn't we have that kind of talent to compete against Iowa State like that? Well, that was Matt Campbell's fifth year. Um, You know, at the time, WVU was in its second year with Brown. So it's kind of an apple-oranges argument at that point. They they were a lot further ahead in their progression um, as far as building that program. So that's kind of like a a brief overview of what our schedule was. Like I said, uh, you know, we battled hard. We were almost there in a lot of games, um, but just couldn't convert those field goals to touchdowns. Um, But I think compared to, you know, 2019, it was a huge step in in our progression as well. And so then our next segment, um, this is going to kind of deal with more of, uh, like I said before, what was left on the table? What we didn't get to see and uh, due to the pandemic and maybe what could have been. So this segment is kind of the uh, what if segment, what was left on the table um, because of the pandemic, right? We had a shortened schedule, so we didn't get to play Florida State. We didn't get to play Maryland and we didn't play Oklahoma. So I'm not one to deal in what ifs too much, but I think this season specifically um, is is appropriate for that because there was a lot left on the table. We didn't get to see the full potential of the team. And so with that, I I think we beat Florida State that year. Um, They were going through a regime change with Mike Norvell uh, from Memphis. It was his first season. And it was rough for them. You know, they went three and six. Uh, they did have a good win over number five UNC, but their only two victories were Duke, who went two and nine, and Jacksonville State, who's FCS. You know, and they did lose to Georgia Tech, who's three and seven, and Louisville, who's four and seven. Um, and you know, we would have caught them in their first game ever under Norvell, which I think would have benefited us. You know, one hundred percent. If you look back in two thousand nineteen when we played JMU. You know, there were a lot of struggles. There were a lot of wrinkles and kinks to work out. And that probably would have been the same for Florida State. So I, I think that plays in our favor. And, you know, we didn't get to play Maryland. Um, that's possibly a 50-50 toss-up. Who knows? Um, we did have them at home. And they finished 2-3 and three on the season. So, you know, they only had five games. But most predicted them preseason to finish 6 out of 7 uh, in their division, just above Rutgers. So again, we did have them at home, so that plays into our advantage, which probably leads me to believe that, you know, we would be favored in that game. Uh, then there's Oklahoma, you know, who finished 9-2. and two, So I'm just going to chalk that up to a loss because that's 
most likely what would have happened. So for the sake of argument, we'll say that, you know, we would have went two and one, maybe one and two with the three games we didn't get to play. So essentially you're looking at a possibly six and six record or an even seven, five record, depending on what happened with Maryland. Um, at that point, you know, maybe we don't even play Army if the entire season plays out because we weren't scheduled to play them initially. Um, they were supposed to play Tennessee in the Liberty Bowl. Uh, Tennessee had to drop out due to COVID, so, you know, we stepped in into their place. Um, so you're looking at a window of finishing six and seven or possibly eight and five. You know, that's what we're working with. But I think the important thing is, is we don't finish lower than uh, six and six for the regular season. And like going back, I'm pretty confident we beat Florida State. Um, so with that said, you know, this segment isn't everything. Like you can't rely everything on what if, but I think it's an important part. It's something. Uh, like I said, you didn't get to see the full potential of the team. So I think that kind of weighs, uh, in the, at least for me, it weighs in my grading of the season. So our next segment, we're going to get to it. Uh, just kind of my final thoughts on the year, and we will get to the grading of Neil Brown for 2020. I want to remind Mountaineer fans that as I grade these seasons, they are a year-to-year assessment. So I did judge 2020 mostly as a standalone, but I also referenced 2019, um, you know, to show signs of progression. I also factored in, you know, fan expectations, media expectations, and certainly the pandemic did play a role. So for year two as a fan, uh, you know, in a rebuilding program, you want to make a bowl and you want to win one. And I think that's a logical expectation. And that was accomplished, even in a funky, weird pandemic year. We won a bowl game against Army. And I'll use Brad Howe uh, as a reference. Uh, You know, he's on Metro News Sportsline and a member of the Three Guys Before the Game podcast. And this is a bit paraphrased, but he did say that no one is going to feel sorry for you in a loss. So don't apologize for winning. And essentially what he's saying is no one wants excuses for losing. So there should be no excuses for winning. You know, it doesn't matter why you lost, you lost the game. So the same can be said for a win. It doesn't matter how you got it, you got it. Take it and move on. So looking back at 2019, you know, which was dubbed year zero, um, if Neil Brown stood at the podium and said, in 2020, we will win 60% of our games, and that includes a bowl victory. I think fans sign up for that. Uh, you know, I certainly would. And whether that is the full schedule of 12 games, uh, 13 with a bowl game, or a pandemic schedule, that's completely out of anyone's hands. Um, you know, no one could have anticipated that. But when you break it down for the 2020 season, we did win 60% of their games, and that includes a bowl win. I think that is a sign of progression for year two and is exactly what you want to see. Now, looking at the uh, media predictions and expectations, you know, I dubbed these the grain of salt prediction because I don't put a lot of stock into it. But if you do, the Big 12 media picked us to finish eighth, and we finished sixth. So, again, if you're into that, a feather in the cap for Neil Brown, you finished two spots higher than what was predicted. So, overall, for the 2020 season, I give Neil Brown the grade of a B. And so, with everything that went on the pandemic year, 
Um, you know, we saw progression on both sides and we got the bowl win. Um, you know, unfortunately, we didn't see the team's full potential because of a shortened season. And uh, that's kind of graded on a curve a little bit. But also, uh, there are signs that we need to improve, right? As I said before, those field goals uh, need to turn into touchdowns. Uh, so as we stand here, uh, this was my grade for the season. You can agree and not agree, but I appreciate you listening. And uh, we'll get together next time for episode three. I hope you enjoyed listening to episode two. And at this point, you may be thinking, you know, this guy's graded Neil Brown with an A and a B. He's clearly just a Neil Brown apologist. Well, I invite you to tune into episode three next week as I continue the Neil Brown report card for year 2021, which I have dubbed the disappointment. You can find this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and iHeartRadio. For more content from the Bearded Ear, please follow me on Facebook and on Twitter at Earbeard. That's E-E-R-B-E-A-R-D. Thanks again for listening, everyone. And as always, let's go Mountaineers!